Grab your Bibles, church. 33 verses in front of us this morning. Giddy up. Let's go. Acts chapter 10. We're going to look at it over the next couple of weeks. And um, all right, confession time. Confession time. It's hard not to prejudge people. True? It's hard not to prejudge people. Clothing, hair, mannerisms, job, body shape, height, car they drive, age, skin color, head covering, sexual orientation, gender. It's so easy to prejudge people or to be prejudiced. Now, I think that we might be willing to say that we on occasion prejudge people, but we would stop short of actually calling ourselves prejudice, but it's the same. The word prejudice, I love etymologies. The word origins, prejudice, comes from medieval Latin, prejudicium or injustice. So to be prejudiced is to treat someone unjustly. It's injustice by its very nature. In common Latin, it means prior judgment or judicial examination before trial, assumption of guilt. We could add these definitions more contemporary. Unfavorable, pre- to be prejudiced is to have an unfavorable opinion or feeling formed beforehand or without knowledge, thought, or reason. And even in the, in the first century as we approach the text, even as a Christian, the apostle Peter, the head of the church, retained enough Old Testament law in him that he still had prejudice. By Acts chapter 10, he still had prejudice for Gentiles. Not just him. Everyone. It was baked into who they were. Or to use a more contemporary expression, it was systemic. But God was moving his people past these old prejudices. He was moving them into a new kind of community that the world had never seen before, that would draw in, as Jesus said in the Great Commission, that would draw in all nations under the gospel. And that's what we see today as Peter is pressed to ditch his prejudices and to connect with a Gentile named Cornelius. And in this passage, this narrative, we're going to see God's heart for all of us as Christians, as the church, to be free of prejudice. It's going to take me three minutes and 41 seconds to read the text. Follow along with me in Acts chapter 10. At Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion of what was known as the Italian cohort, a devout man who feared God with all his household, gave alms generously to the people, and prayed continually to God. About the ninth hour of the day, he saw clearly in a vision an angel of God come in and say to him, Cornelius. And he stared at him in terror and said, What is it, Lord? And he said to him, Your prayers and your alms have ascended as a memorial before God. And now send men to Joppa and bring one Simon who is called Peter. He's lodging with one Simon, a tanner, whose house is by the sea. When the angel who spoke to him had departed, he called two of his servants and a devout soldier from among those who attended him. And having related everything to them, he sent them to Joppa. The next day, as they were on their journey and approaching the city, Peter went up on the housetop about the sixth hour to pray. 
And he became hungry, and he wanted something to eat. But while they were preparing it, he fell into a trance. He saw heaven, the heavens open and something like a great sheet descending, being let down by its four corners upon the earth. And in it were all kinds of animals and reptiles and birds of the air. And there came a voice to him, rise, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said, by no means, Lord, for I've never eaten anything that's common or unclean. And the voice came to him a second time, what God has made clean, do not call common. This happened three times, and the thing was taken up at once to heaven. Now, while Peter was inwardly perplexed as to what the vision that he had seen might mean, behold, the men who were sent by Cornelius, having made inquiry for Simon's house, stood at the gate and called out to ask whether Simon, who was called Peter, was lodging there. And while Peter was pondering the vision, the Spirit said to him, behold, three men are looking for you. Rise, go down, and accompany them without hesitation, for I have sent them. Peter went down uh, to the men and said, I'm the one you're looking for. What's the reason for your coming? And they said, Cornelius, a centurion, an upright and God-fearing man who's well spoken of by the whole Jewish nation, was directed by a holy angel to send for you to come to his house and to hear what you have to say. So he invited them in to be his guests. The next day he rose and went with them, and some of the brothers from Joppa accompanied him, and on the following day they entered Caesarea. Cornelius was expecting them and had called together his relatives and close friends. When Peter entered, Cornelius met him and fell down at his feet and worshipped him. Peter lifted him up, stand up, saying, stand up, I too am a man. He talked with him and he went in and found many persons gathered. And he said to them, you yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or visit anyone of another nation. But God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. So when I was sent for, I came without objection. I asked then why you have sent for me. And Cornelius said, four days ago, about this hour, I was praying in my house at the ninth hour, and behold, a man stood before me in bright clothing and said, Cornelius, your prayer has been heard and your alms have been remembered before God. Send therefore to Joppa and ask for Simon, who is called Peter. He's lodging in the house of Simon a tanner by the sea. So I sent for you at once, and you have been kind enough to come. Now, therefore, we are all here in the presence of God to hear all that you have been commanded by the Lord. All right, here it is in your notes and on the screen. If I am to be free from prejudice as God intends, I must be, first of all, close to his heart. A basic principle of mentoring and of discipleship where I would learn and grow from the life experience of another, a basic principle of that is proximity. I need to be close to that person. And to the extent that I'm close to Christ, if I would have Him mentor me, if I would become like Him, to the extent that I'm close to Christ, hearing Him, seeing His heart, I will become like Him. And so it's not surprising that what stands out in the first 16 verses of the passage we just read is that both Cornelius and Peter were faithful and prayerful and, and, and worshiping God when He reached out to them. This move of God that would alter the trajectory of the global church for all generations starts with two men who are passionately devoted to spending time with God. Verse 1, Cornelius, he's a centurion of the Italian cohort. He's a, he's a Roman. He's a Gentile. He was raised a pagan. 
but he's described in verse 2 as devout, fearing God. He's a worshiper of Yahweh. He has faith in the God of Israel. He led his household to also believe. He was generous. His faith was being expressed in his actions toward others. He was generous in his giving. He was a man of prayer. And God gave him this vision to get Peter to come and teach him more, to tell him about the Messiah, to deliver to him the gospel. That was Cornelius. And Peter, we see, Peter too, he was on the housetop about the sixth hour, that's noon. And he was up there to pray. He too was close to God, and we've seen that throughout the book of Acts. Now listen, on this topic of prejudice, I don't hold out much hope that any of us can break free of our baked-in prejudices unless we are quite close to Christ. Unless we're in His Word, unless we hear what it says, unless we are surrendered to the Holy Spirit and open to be changed, unless we are persisting in prayer and devoted to community and putting ourselves in a place where God can truly transform us, that I hold out little hope. We need to be in that place that is close to his heart, a place where we can see indeed that God so loves the world, the whole world, in all of its marvelous God-created diversity. God so loves that world. Well, that's the starting point, but I also need to see or also need to be quick to obey, close to the heart of God and quick to obey. And both Cornelius and Peter acted immediately on the instructions that were given to them by God. For his part, notice Peter was, verse 17 says, he was inwardly perplexed. And I would be too if I received a vision like Peter received. Inwardly perplexed. He saw this vision, verse 11 says, of something like a great sheet, a big squared sheet, descending, being let down by its four corners upon the earth. Now you have to notice that as he's receiving this vision, it is the sixth hour, it is noon, which we know as lunchtime. Noon is lunchtime. And he became, verse 10 says, he became hungry because it was It was lunchtime, and he wanted something to eat, but this is all in verse 10, but while they were preparing it, so he's like, somebody's getting some food ready for him, but while they're preparing it, he fell into a trance. This happens to a lot of guys. (laughs) This is like normal. Like, I'm reading this going, "Uh uh-huh, like, I get this. This has happened to me. You know, you're not you when you're hungry. You know that. Snickers commercial, you didn't get that? You're not you when you're hungry? Betty White, all the, no? No? You're not you when you're hungry. So he falls into this trance, and he, of course, what does he dream about? He's dreaming about food. Verse 12, inside the sheet are all kinds of animals, reptiles, birds. Then he hears, verse 13, a voice, is the voice of God, rise, Peter, kill and eat. I don't want to offend anybody right now. It's clear God is not on the vegetarian program. (laughs) If you're offended by that, just send me an email. 
rfreeman at harvestberry.ca. <laughs> All right, so understandably, he's got this vision sheet, animals in it, kill and eat. Verse 17, he's inwardly perplexed because Jews, even Jewish Christians, wouldn't eat unclean animals. Certain animals they could eat, certain animals they couldn't eat. And he's thinking, man, if this is true, all those times I've gone to Burger Royale and I haven't been able to get the bacon double cheeseburger, now I can do that with a side of deep fried shrimp. And while I'm getting that bacon double cheeseburger with shrimp, man, that, I, I, can, I can violate, I can put aside three dietary restrictions all at once. Now, Jesus, this shouldn't have come as a surprise to Peter because Jesus actually set the stage for all of this in Mark's gospel, chapter seven. But in fact, this is rocking Peter's world. And he does push back a bit. Verse 14, by no means, I'm not going to eat anything like that. I mean, he pushes back because after all, he's still Peter. When was there a time that God spoke to Peter that Peter didn't push back on God? So he pushes back on him a little bit. And it does take, verse 16 tells us, it takes three times for him to get it. Because, you know, it's Peter. Then in the latter part of verse 17 into verse 18, the emissaries arrive right on time. So as he's inwardly perplexed and thinking about all of this, the emissaries arrive. By the way, Peter was at, um, Peter who's also known as Simon, he was at Simon, the other Simon's house. He's a tanner. Tanneries were always easy to find and the text actually tells us they were by the sea. You know, Barry had a tannery. This is the Barry Tanning uh, Company. And it was on Bradford Street, but at that time, of course, there's been so much fill that's gone into our waterfront. This was actually a waterfront business on Bradford Street. And the stories, if you read the history, that the water would run red, that anybody who went into the bay to go swimming would come out red from the tannery, from, from the leather. So anyways, tanneries are always by the water for that reason. They need a lot of water and they're always flushing it out to make the leathery. So, so they're looking for Simon the Tanner. They see the sign, Leather Goods by Simon. So they know this is the place. <laughs> Verse 19 to 23, the Spirit let him know that this was all part of it, communicates with him, tells him these people are here and that he's to go with them. And Peter's perplexity begins to dissipate a little more. He's got a puzzle. More pieces are going into the puzzle as time goes on. And an early indicator that he completely got it is verse 23. And you, you would miss this in the narrative if you didn't really think about what's going on. But in verse 23, it says this, he invited them in to be his guests. What just happened? A Jewish Christian who was still following the Old Testament dietary law just invited three Gentiles to come into his house and stay. I mean, that's the breakthrough. That's the evidence that Peter got it. And as the Lord told him, so he did, verse 20, without hesitation, without Without hesitation, but there's more to the word hesitation. In the footnote, if you're carrying the ESV, it says without distinction. That's more to the point. Without entertaining doubts, the Nazvi says, without misgivings, without any hesitation, Peter, Peter would, would move on here. It's like any hesitation Peter would have had would have been all about their Gentileness. And God was saying, don't let those prejudices get in the way of going with them. 
Now, as I see all of that, Christians must do race differently. Christians must do race differently. When we take up the cause, and this is, so many Christians have done this, when we take up the cause of right or left, we fail to distinguish ourselves from the world and from the special interest groups that are so politically motivated. We shouldn't be identifying with right or left. We shouldn't be looking to identify ourselves with one side of the spectrum or the other. What we're called to as gospel people is to see the issue of race through the eyes of the Creator who made each one as they are and who will on the last day welcome to His throne room without prejudice ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And if we are centered on the gospel, we will not only long for that day to come when we'll be in that throng of people from every tribe and language and people and nation, but we'll be working on that as best we're able now in the church and in the communities in which we live. Amen? Amen. We'll see this next. I must also be eager to witness His work. I want to be where God's at work. I want to be where God's doing something. You know what's truly awful in this life? Not all the trials we go through, not the difficulties we face. You know what's truly awful for a Christian? Boring church. Boring Christianity. A a faith that does nothing and sees God not do anything. That's That's what's truly awful. And I remember a book from a long time ago. Some of you uh, probably have read this book by Henry Blackaby, uh, Experiencing God. And and Blackaby just said this, and it changed the lives of so many people and so many churches. Uh, Watch to see where God is working and join him in his work. You see God working somewhere and it's not where you happen to be? Move. Go to the place where God is working. Don't go somewhere boring. Don't stay somewhere boring. Watch to see where God is working and join Him in His work. Now the next morning, we come back to the text here, verse 23, off they go, the three Gentile emissaries that were sent by Cornelius. And according to Peter's report about all of this in chapter 11, there were six other believers from Joppa plus Peter. So 10 of them are leaving uh, Joppa to head up to Caesarea now. Jewish Christians and Gentiles walking together on this 60-kilometer journey back to Caesarea. Now, those six other believers, they're just watching everything happen. The emissaries came to take Peter, and six other people are watching this all go down and saying, I am not missing this. Peter got a word from God and had a vision. An angel showed up and talked to Cornelius. Are you kidding me? There is nothing keeping me in Joppa right now. And six of them said, I want to be in the place where God is working. Because they suspect that something awesome is about to happen. And a day later, uh, verse 24, they enter Caesarea. Cornelius was expecting them because they texted just before they got there. (laughs) That's what we do, right? And just text me before you get here. Right? Doesn't say in the text. It could have been. 
And, and he had called together his relatives and his close friends. Something is about to happen, and it's going to be awesome. And the, so the question I have for, like, are you like the six? Are you part of the six? Like, you're just looking for places where God is working, and you're so eager to make the trip and be there. Do you want to see God work in an awesome way? Are you eager to witness the things that God is doing? I fear so many of us are not. Because if you're at home watching Netflix, you're not going to see what God is doing. You're only going to get to see what Hollywood is doing. If you have the sports package, you're not going to see God at work. You're just going to get to see what your favorite team is doing. If you're immersed in your job, you're only going to get to see what your business is doing. And if your thumbs hurt from so much scrolling, you're only going to get to see what Mark Zuckerberg is doing. Zuckerberg is going to get to see what you're doing, actually. But <laughs> now think about this. The Apostle John said in his letter, 1 John 2.17, he said this, the world is passing away. We're at the bedside of the world. The world is at hospice. We're just waiting for it to die. The world is passing away. The current state of affairs in the world is unsustainable. The die is cast. There's no stopping the downward spiral that our world is in, it is literally the death spiral. Despite all the talk of peace and how enlightened we are as a people, wouldn't you not agree with me that hatred in our world is at an all-time high? The right is more right than ever. The left is more left than ever. And they lob their shells over the majority of us who are trying to build a life and live a life somewhere in the middle of these two ridiculous extremes. The world is dying. The pandemic has exposed our vulnerability more than at any other time since the nuclear threat of the Cold War. We feel powerless, don't we? We feel at the mercy of governments that if they were honest would tell you they don't know what they're doing. We feel at the mercy of big pharma who's raking in massive profits. And I'm pro-vaccine, but I see the evil of capitalism too. I see the manipulation. The pandemic has exposed our vulnerability. We're also learning just how fragile the world economy is. Something as simple as somehow we can't get enough truck drivers. Uh, 20 months ago, we had enough truck drivers. Where'd they all go? Why are the ships stacked up in the Pacific? The global economy is hanging by a thread. We're so vulnerable. We're at the bedside watching as the world passes away. 
by the way, I'm not saying all those things as a rant for us to take up any of those causes. I frankly don't care. I care about the gospel. In the midst of ships being stacked up in a fragile economy and the pandemic and vaccines and people making money and others being pushed into poverty, in the midst of all of that, people are dying without Christ. And that's our message, not any of those other things. But here's what's amazing. In the midst of the world dying, in the midst of this, this, this horrible situation, God has given us, the people of God, a rescue mission to carry out. So tell as many as you can about Jesus and his salvation. Preach the cross. Preach the resurrection. Tell people he's coming back. Because that is our only hope. Make sure that people do not have their confidence in themselves. Make sure it is not in pleasure. Make sure it is not in money. Make sure it is not in their fame, status, or achievements. Make sure they're not placing it in their own strength and their own wisdom. Because the world is dying. And all of those things with it. But the hope we have is that Jesus can whisk us away. Jesus will whisk us away in a moment. In the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. And he will take us into an unimaginable eternity with him if we would only have faith in him. God is working one person at a time. And churches that get this are on mission. Those are the place that the six want to be. And should be the place that you want to be. Right in the center of God's work. All right, a couple more. We're making good time here. I must also be committed to change. How many of you, like, I mean, obviously, the, the sermon point says I, uh, I need to be committed to change, so no one's going to raise their hand now and say that they don't like change, right? Because you'd know that I was baiting you. How many people don't like change, right? But the reality is, like, most of us don't like change. We like things to be comfortable and easy. We like the status quo. But the reality is, as Christians, change is good for us. In fact, transformational change is what we're supposed to be about as Christians. The status quo in the Christian life is antithetical to what we say we believe about uh, progressive sanctification and becoming more like Jesus Christ. So with respect to change, watch how Peter is being transformed here. He gets to the place... And, and, and there's the whole uncomfortable thing with Cornelius coming in and Cornelius bows down and, and gives him honor that is not due to him and he calls him out for that. We're going to cut Cornelius some slack because he's not saved yet. Then Peter says in verse 28, you know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or visit anyone of another nation. You know how people of color don't hang out with white folks? You know how rich people don't hang out with poor people? That's essentially what's, what, what's being said here. You, you know how Jews don't hang out with Gentiles? He's exposing the prejudice that was there and built into the system. He says, well, here we are. We're together. Jewish Christians and Gentiles together. And the fact that he was there was an indicator of transformation, of change, of growth that was happening in his life. And he says in verse 29, when I was sent for, I came without objection. 
Now, the vision in verses 10 through 16 was about food. We talked about that. The vision was about food. It was a sheet. There was animals in it. God said, kill and eat them. It was about food, but it wasn't. And Peter understood that it was not really about food. In fact, the Old Testament law, you could write down this reference, Leviticus 20, 24 to 26. The Old Testament law linked food and hanging out with the people who ate the food together. The main reason why you wouldn't hang out with Gentiles was that you would inevitably end up sharing a meal with them, and that would cause a problem for you because you had dietary restrictions. So he says in verse 28, God has shown me, this is the lesson he's taking out of this vision about food. God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. Peter knew it wasn't about food. This wasn't about him being able to eat a bacon cheeseburger. This was about him being able to eat the bacon cheeseburger with whomever, without restriction. Peter understood that. The change was happening in Peter's life, and it's foolish to think that any Christian would ever get to the place where they think they've changed enough. Now, I've been walking with Jesus for 30 years or 40 years. I think I've changed enough. You should see what I was like before and all the things I've already changed. I'm kind of like set where I am right now. Any of the other things that I have that maybe are still matters of holiness in my life, I'm just like, I'm going to ride this out. It's foolish to think that way. To think we've changed enough or achieved an acceptable level of the knowledge of God and of personal holiness. We don't get to that place until we breathe our last and see Jesus and have our glorified body. Then the transformation process is done. Until that day, we're still in it. To think anything else is insulting to the Savior who sacrificed his life for us. The Apostle Paul, speaking about the ongoing change in a Christian's life, wrote this in Romans 12 too. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. It's about ongoing change in our lives. And we think about the things that are the hardest things to change. And I think most of us, if we were pressed to give an answer to that, what's the hardest thing to change? Most of us would say habits or addictions, which is just an extreme form of a habit. Most of us would say addictions are the hardest things that we have to overcome. But I would disagree with that. I've seen so many people overcome addictions and habits in their lives and conform to Christ. What many Christians have trouble changing are their opinions. Oh, opinions, those are so much harder to change than a habit. Peter didn't have to change a habit. As one commentator said, Peter had to change his views. He had to change his opinion. So many Christians still have so many personal and unbiblical opinions about things. It's not easy to change your views. But it's so critical that we do. So much is at stake with this, not just 
the evangelism of the world so that they would take our message seriously, but the, the internal workings of the body of Christ that we're supposed to love one another here. And this matter of prejudice amongst ourselves is of critical importance. In fact, I saw this a tweet by a um, uh, an Asian American Christian leader by the name of Raymond Chang. He said this. He tweeted this: "The hardest racism to endure is and will always be racism from fellow Christians. Always." This is a turning point for the church, what's happening here in Acts 10. This Acts 10 narrative, we took all that time to read it. We're not even done it. Then Peter in chapter 11 goes back to Jerusalem. He reports about the whole thing, tells part of the story again. Four chapters later in Acts chapter 15, they've called leaders from around the world to a church council. Leaders all get together. It's referenced again. Acts chapter 10 is a pivotal moment in the life of the church. This is critical for us to get this. And we're only going to get it if we believe Romans 12 too, that we must be transformed in an ongoing way, committed to always being changed, being changed and to do so, notice, by the renewal of our minds. If you have any prejudice in you, it's only going to disappear because you convince yourselves of the truths of God's word. You believe what God believes. Not what your upbringing tells you. Not what your culture is. Not what Facebook gives you for sure. So believe. Believe what the scriptures tell us about these things. Believe Galatians 3.28 that there's neither Jew nor Greek. That we are all one in Christ Jesus. Believe what James, 1, uh, James 2 says. Show no partiality as you hold the faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. If you do show partiality, you're committing sin. Believe Romans 2.11, which simply says God shows no partiality. You want to be like God? Show no partiality. Believe Ephesians 2, for he himself is our peace who has made us both, Jew and Gentile, one, and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. It just doesn't exist anymore in the heart and mind of God. Believe Revelation 5 and long for this day. Worthy are you, Jesus, to take the scroll and open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on earth. If there's any prejudice in you, let your mind meditate on Believe, accept, and live out these truths. Finally, if I'm to be free of prejudice as God intends, I must be centered on the gospel. Peter gets there, verse 29, I ask then why you sent for me. 
And in verses 30 through 32, Cornelius replays the vision that he received and then says, we are all here in the presence of God to hear all that you have been commanded by the Lord. We need to hear the gospel. We need to hear the rest of the story. We need to hear how the gospel penetrates our lives and changes us. When it does, we have to understand some things about what we've even been talking about here today. Eliminating prejudice does not mean ignoring the truth or considering everyone saved by God apart from personal repentance. Those things are still in play. In Cornelius' case, he was a Gentile. He was a Roman. He was a soldier. And God said to Peter, go hang out with him. But when you're there, deliver the gospel. Tell him about Jesus. Because he's not saved yet. You can have a meal with him. You can spend time with him. You you can accept him for who he is. You're not going to let the fact that he's a Roman and a Gentile and a soldier stand in the way of the relationship, but you're going to share the gospel. So in our case, it's go hang out with people without prejudice for the purpose of sharing the gospel. There's a fallacy today that loving someone means agreeing with everything that they're about. It's a fallacy. I can love you and disagree with you. Yes, some of the things that are at the root of our prejudices, these are unchangeable about a person, and we need to accept them on these basis. If someone's age is unchangeable. Well, I mean, it's, I mean, it's always changing up. But ageism shouldn't have a place. Person can't change their race. They can't change the fact that they're disabled. These should be accepted without prejudice. No change necessary. Cornelius was never going to be able to change the fact that he was a Gentile. Peter needed to accept him as a Gentile. Other aspects of who a person are are indeed changeable and should be surrendered to the gospel. One's sexuality. One's religion should be surrendered to the gospel. Cornelius could no longer be a mere worshiper of Yahweh. He would need to embrace the Messiah. His sexual ethic would now be subject to Christ and more. And when we're gospel-centered people, we welcome all, we hang out with all, we love all, we share the gospel with all, without prejudice. Because that's what God intends. Amen? Let me pray for us. Uh, Father, we have uh, heard your word. And it's one thing to give assent, to nod in agreement, to be determined to make the necessary changes, but Father, unless our will conforms and unless your Holy Spirit helps us, we have no hope of applying this message. And God, it's, it's so necessary that we do. Father, we want this church to be the light of Christ to this community. Father, we want to be the leaders 
among all people in this city. We want the gospel to so transform us. We want to be so like Jesus that for those of all races, of all ages, of either gender, those who are on the margins for whatever reason, those who are in whatever minority might be identified, that they would find a place of love and safety here like no other place in this city or county. So God, help us with that. Change us, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.